Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3. And I am reflecting on the fact that it is July. And July is special in, in many ways, not just because of the beautiful weather, but because we are approaching one year of the Equity Matters Podcast. And I feel like it's been a blur. It's just been that much fun. You know, they say time flies when you're having fun. And it's been a lot uh, to enjoy on the Equity Matters podcast. So salute to you all, the listeners, the followers, the friends, the family, anybody who's tuned in, checked on an episode, asked me questions after an episode. I mean, Equity Matters was created as a platform for engagement and for people to learn, to expand their knowledge set. And I'm just grateful for you all for committing to that. In that same vein, Today's episode is all about this notion of decolonizing the curriculum. And I said it earlier in the preview for this time on Equity Matters, decolonization is not a metaphor. It is not to be used lightly. And it is really entrenched into the decentering of white settler values and beliefs that have been embedded into all of our institutions. And today we just happen to be focusing on academia. I also want to acknowledge that this this terminology is borrowed from indigenous individuals. And that's important here because there's an episode, I believe it'll be dropping in September, October, where we really dig into some of the ramifications of colonization when it comes to research. So I'm really excited for that episode when it drops. It's, it's a great episode. Today, we are hearing from Jonathan Wesley, a fraternity brother of mine who is also a black queer man. And I say all of these things to really set the tone for intersectionality and just the ways that our various social identities come together. And in some instances, it aligns with the majority and grants you privileges, or it is the exact opposite and it becomes oppressive. And so Jonathan does a great job in today's episode really framing that. And I I don't want to steal his thunder. So what I'll do is I'm going to stop talking and I'm excited to introduce you all to Jonathan Wesley. Jonathan, you want to introduce yourself to the listeners today? Sure. Hey, everybody. My name is Jonathan Wesley and um, I'm from Newark, New Jersey, born and raised in, some people say Newark, but natives, we say (laughs) Newark. so I'm, I'm glad to be here this evening. So Jonathan, tell us a little bit about your educational background. Yeah, so I started school um, in 2007. I'm a millennial, so I'm currently 31 years old, uh, 1989. I'm a Virgo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I'm from the inner city, born and raised in Newark and Irvington, New Jersey. So I went to public schools. Um, after graduating from high school, I went to Claflin, C-L-A-F-L-I-N, University, the greatest HBCU uh, in these United States. That's my own bias. So <laughs> I left Jersey to go 727 miles south to a place that was a culture shock to me, growing up in inner city and then going to the country where at that time they did not even have a bus 
in the township of Orangeburg. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> I was so, it was so confusing. <laughs> but I went there to major in music because I had a scholarship for uh, music education with a concentration in vocal performance because I am saying I am a first tenor. But while I was pursuing my degree, spirit really spoke to me about using my voice for more than performance from an entertainment perspective. So I switched my major from music education with a concentration in voice to sociology, total opposite end of the spectrum. And um, while I was there, my undergraduate research was what motivates people to lie? Cause I just could not gather like, what's, what's the point of lying? Just tell the truth. And then when I engaged in research and found out about different types of lies and did a survey about why people do it. And it was really interesting. So anyway, while I was in undergrad, uh, I finished in 2010. So I finished early from undergrad, even with switching my, my major while working several jobs um, as a first gen student. I just didn't have any additional financial support. So I was on my own. So um, did that at Claflin. After I finished Claflin, I got accepted to seminary to Candler School of Theology, but I did not go. I've been preaching since I was 15, but I just, I was like, no, I'm not going to seminary though. You know, it just wasn't what I wanted to do at that time. So I then started my sec my master's degree in education with a concentration in higher ed from Columbia College. I was a part of the inaugural class and I was the spokesperson and all the other stuff because I learned that higher ed was a career field when I was in undergrad because I worked in the student affairs area. And so I got my first master's, was still working, of course. And then I went on to start my doctorate. I had a, I was pursuing an EDD because I wanted to have my doctor by the time I turned 28. And as I was in my first semester in 2014, pursuing the EDD, um, my mother, who was my best friend, took ill and she passed away two days before my 25th birthday. Um, after she passed, two months later, my godmother passed as well. And so in December of 2014, I found myself in a space of, well, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Because you've clearly taken away the my heart you literally ripped it out so what do you want <laughs> you know what do i need to submit to at this point and what came back to me in reference to instruction was that i needed to go to candler to go to seminary so i and to write write a book so i started writing the book but i was like i'm still not going to seminary <laughs> and then life started happening and then i ended up in atlanta not too long after that so in 2015 i moved to atlanta to pursue um, a master's of religion and public life from emory university Campbell school of theology um, i graduated from there and um, i'm currently in the dissertation phase of my phd at Georgia State. So it is my whole prayer that I will finish by the end of this year. But that's my educational journey. I'm, I'm an interdisciplinarian, right? So I have the sociology background, I have the, the theological and religious studies background, and I have this education at my foundation. Um, so yeah, that's my, my educational background. I always love hearing um, individuals' trajectories, right? Because it's never as linear as people think it is. Like, how did you get here? Well, I went this way, this way, this way. That didn't work out. So then I turned around, then I stopped for a minute, then I came back, but everything's good. And so I, I appreciate you sharing that um, because I think it helps to frame kind of the next question I have for you, 
around education, right? And just based on all these perspectives that you have, what does decolonizing education mean to you? Oh, that is such a loaded statement, a loaded question. <laughs> um, decolonizing education for me really speaks to the decentering of the majoritarian white narrative from one perspective of race. However, I also have to trouble that nuance because education has also been, uh, I would say, colonized using this word or sanitized um, with forms of this sense of erasure when it comes to the intersecting identities that we all have. Right. So for me, decolonizing education means centering anything that is in the majoritarian that has this privilege, has power, and is extremely biased. So what I mean by that is the centering of whiteness, the centering of heteronormativity, the centering of patriarchy, the centering of Christianity, the centering of being cisgendered, all of those intersections, being able-bodied, able-minded, instead of differently able, this narrative, this construct in education that solely focuses on that, as if this is the way everybody needs to be and everybody needs to think this way about this, and that is not true. So decolonizing that is deconstructing those narratives so that they are not centered and that we bring true equity to what it means to really have a full or liberal education. So knowing that this centered whiteness and center majority as, as you described it, because I've never really taken the time to think about the different ways that it shows up. What are some of the larger problems that we have or that we see in education because of this? So I'm going to speak to this from two different areas. From K-12 standards, the educators have to teach towards state standards in order for students you know to graduate to take these tests uh which are problematic within themselves but the curricular aspects i'm going to speak to specifically do not lift the voices and the experiences of a truly diverse community or a global perspective right so for example it's February, it's Black History Month. Typically in US history, they speak to Black history, but it's normalized from this context of slavery as if Black people only <laughs> came into existence during slavery because well, the, the European individuals who went to Africa just you know had to save them, quote, from their, quote, savage behaviors. Um, and so, but that piece is not highlighted. It, the, 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 the torture that was embedded upon the African in order to come to this country and to be brainwashed, to be abused in all senses of the word, to be domesticated into a different way of being, which they would think 
and when I say they, I'm talking about the white majoritarian would think that, you know, African-Americans would need to be this kind of subservient people. So let me domesticate you so you could be my slave and nothing more, right? So there, there's that challenge, I think from K-12 in, in reference to the sanitization of curriculum. However, that also translates into higher education because oftentimes, faculty have the autonomy and the academic freedom to create the courses in the way that they so desire. The standards that they teach towards are based on the accreditation body, but those are pretty loose for interpretation. So if a faculty wanted to teach a course about, you know, whatever the topic may be, they pick their sources, they create their own assignments, and the students engage in this learning experience, which oftentimes comes from a deficit, right? Um, because the canons that educators study are typically white. They're typically cisgendered. They're typically heterosexual. So when you have these main frameworks and these paradigms that are being taught in a, um, in, in a cycle, then we don't have the opportunity as much to really work through what does it mean to decolonize education from this curricular standpoint, right? Because what individuals are taught in their collegiate education, um, they then regurgitate that instead of diving deeper and looking at the intersections, the nuances of what their professors did not teach them about, if that makes sense. And it, and it does. And so what I'm hearing in part is a lack of diversity one plays a significant role in kind of the curriculums that we come up with the voices that we hear but it also sounds like in many cases it's a choice right like mm -hmm. it's a choice not to expand your knowledge base to listen to other voices that you're not as familiar with and not to acknowledge intersectionality yep yeah. so how is it exactly that this problem stays in place i mean Right now it's 2021, everybody, I think we've moved beyond the woke phase. Like everybody wants to talk about equity. Everybody has an anti-racism statement, but the problem is still there. So, so why and how is that? Because accountability is not in place the way that it should be. So as a person who does diversity, equity and inclusion work, and I have coined diversity, equity and inclusion or DEI work as soul work, S-O-U-L, because from my theological background and understanding, unless we really wrestle with our own subjectivities and really know the significance of doing this work internally first, then DEI will always be a checkbox. And when it's just a checkbox as in, oh, we have people of color here, check. Or, or we've acknowledged African-American history in the curriculum, check. But they don't check from whose point of view is that story being told? Where's, who is telling this narrative about these people, right? And these people, again, can fit many different forms, whether it's race, ethnicity, sexuality, gender, ableism, ageism, et cetera, right? So because there aren't these accountability metrics that are really there to say, hey, we are not doing the best job 
at being diverse, equitable, and inclusive in our curriculum. I often say what is not measured cannot be managed. But when individuals make the choice not to measure DEI or measure from a DEI lens, then that's their privilege to say, oh, well, we don't have those problems here. We, we don't have those struggles at this institution because we are this and we are that. But where's your data that supports that? Where's your climate survey that, that speaks to it and that will help to hold you all accountable so that you can really uh, inform change in said institutions, right? So I think that's part of it. Like there's no uh, data or there's limited data and metrics that are being used to compare against. And also talking about this stuff is difficult. It's not easy to dive into diversity, equity, and inclusion work to talk about race and racism or to talk about sex and sexuality, you know, these things that are deemed to be forbidden or uh, one chooses not to quote, chooses not to see, um, <laughs> which is another point of privilege. How do you, because you have a choice not to see it. When every time I think about what happened at the Capitol building in January, every time I see that noose, that was brought to that Capitol building. I don't have a choice not to see that. And I also don't have a choice not to see of African Americans body from that news in the words of Billie Holiday, as she talks about this strange fruit hanging from the street. Like I, I don't have no choice not to see that. You get what I'm saying? But I, I'm saying in connection um, to that, even though having those conversations are difficult, they are extremely meaningful and I, as a scholar, as an activist, as a practitioner, as an African-American queer male, in, in, in all senses, I'm queer in all senses of the word, literally, um, who is a clergyman, who is differently abled, that's not visibly seen, right? But these intersections that aren't talked about, and if we're not willing to have bold conversations to call people into accountability, then this is how our educational structure remains the same because it's not challenged. And it's, it's scary though. Like I said, I, I can't take that away from this conversation. Um, in the multiple spaces that I'm in, work-wise, faith space-wise, fraternity-wise, you get what I'm saying? There's a price that comes along with one stating one's truth in reference to liberate, which is what education is supposed to do. <laughs> education is not supposed to keep us bound. It's supposed to liberate us. And that was the fear of whites with educating blacks was that if you learn more than me, you have the power, you have the potential to overpower me. So it's like, how do we then, now since we have the agency in 2021 to learn more in our technological society, people then make a choice on whether they want to learn stuff or not. And again, we just have to hold people accountable to it because in 2021, there are no excuses, literally. You are reminding me of my dad and these speeches that he would give me about, James, you, you gotta be smart. All right. And it wasn't the whole you got to be smarter than them thing, but it was more they're afraid of your intelligence. Like the moment you get something and you master it, you're a threat. And so like anytime he would see me prosper in, in any subject, anything, he pushed me further, like go learn all the things. And so I just wanted to, to flag that. But also 
going back to something you mentioned around DEI work being soul work, you know, I always describe it as heart work, you know, and I describe heart work as hard work. Like you have to really wrestle with yourself. Like you have to acknowledge, I, I, I can rephrase, I frame it as you have to hold the mirror up to yourself. Mm-hmm. Like not like what you see, mm-hmm. but you have to acknowledge it's there and acknowledge that if you want to change things, you have to change behaviors. You also have yep. to change mindsets and change attitudes. Like all of those things come together. And I don't, I know a lot of folks who are like fledgling to the DEI space. They rush into it like, oh, I know a few concepts. Don't do it. It's dangerous. You will burn out. I'm a social mm-hmm. worker. I've burnt out many times before. Take your time. Yes. Because as many times as I've stood up there facilitating for a group, I realize that I'm actually facilitating for myself. Mm-hmm. 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 So what does the research tell us if it tells us anything about the decolonization of education? And I want to talk more about higher ed in this case. Like what what is the discourse like? What are people saying? <laughs> <laughs> the laugh says everything. Oh. <laughs> In some cases, James, now, of course, yes, the research speaks to it, but the research still speaks minimally as diversity, equity, and inclusion is still fairly new to the field, right? Having the actual conversation, using the actual title where institutions of higher education are now hiring chief diversity officers because of (laughs) what happened in 2020 with the murders of Black people. Um, that's a, I don't even know if that rabbit, I will go down that, I will go down that path for a second, because when we talk about research, the research tells us that institutions that are not committed to doing this soul work and doing this heart work, as you talked about, they're hiring these chief diversity officers to be the solvent for all of their inequitable issues at their institution. <laughs> And oftentimes, the chief diversity officer does not have the autonomy to impact systemic change at said institutions. They have to utilize their influence in order to get people to understand why they need to make changes in their respective areas. So it's really like a consultant. And then with individuals not being empowered to shift the culture. Yes, cultural shifts do take time. It's not something that can happen literally like over one night. However, if you hire a chief diversity officer, (laughs) your method for change needs to be much quicker than a person that does not have that that role um, at their respective institution. Because like, then what's the point of, of having them there? And sometimes I've seen where in red, where chief diversity officers were moved into other areas of the institution or their roles became more than uh, diversity, equity and inclusion because of some of the stuff that was coming up in the culture. And I'm just like, you can't shift people like that um, (laughs) because of the, the issues that are coming up at said campuses. If you don't know how to handle them, that's why you have your, well, one of the reasons why to have a, a chief diversity officer, but in connection to that, what about the other people in your institution that have also done this work? Who can be responsible for shifting the campus climate, right? 
Um, and, and the research is, it shows us that while DEI work is, is here in 2021, that the impact that's needed or that should come from that said role in that office is not moving as quickly as it as it should because the officers the chief diversity officers are not provided the autonomy to really impact systemic change with blatantly addressing systemic racism and all of the other uh, issues homophobia transphobia that exist in said institutions now granted our previous administration was a reason why some of that stuff couldn't be lifted either because um, there was an executive order that was written that said that you can't talk about this stuff you know you t america is great right america is great you only talk about the greatness of america don't talk about slavery and racism because none of that stuff matters it's like, no. So thank goodness that administration is gone um, as we're uh, in a, a brand new day like the movie The Wiz suggests. But um, that's what the research shares about that respect. From a curriculum perspective, there's a lot of research out there within K-12 specifically that speaks about curriculum, how it is established, who it privileges over others. I mean, even when we compare public education to private education, right? There's a stark difference there. Um, but when we talk about the higher ed context, there's just, there's a lot missing, right? Critical race theory, which is a prominent theory, is often not discussed on the undergraduate level, unless one is taking a certain course where the faculty member may lift that, but learners don't really get that type of uh, deep knowledge about, you know, what is interest convergence from a critical race theorist perspective? You know, what what is a counter narrative? What is <laughs> the, um, you know, whiteness as property? What what do those things mean? What do those tenants mean? Those things aren't aren't talked about as in depth as they should be neither are topics about ableism or sexuality and things things of that nature they're all kind of thrown off somewhere else or expected to be covered sometimes in a one-off course and when i say a one-off course i mean like a intro to diversity class and learners are supposed to just learn everything they need to know <laughs> within that one class instead of implementing DEI into every course in the curriculum that any learner takes at any institution and that the faculty are culturally competent and aware enough and responsive on how to engage in these conversations, even when it is difficult for them. Um, so again, some of the research doesn't really speak to the latter part that I was saying, because this is still being studied. Um, but as this field continues to emerge, I could definitely see that this will continue to be um, an area of research and it, and it needs to continue to be researched. You brought up so many things that I wanna spin off into. Like I literally less than an hour ago was thinking about how many chief diversity positions have been created within the last year. 
compared to the last 10 years. Like I, I promise you, gave my kids baths, sat down, don't even know why I started thinking about that. But I promise you that was on my mind. Like, is this just the cool thing to do right now? Everybody needs a CDL. But mm-hmm. to your point, I much rather be a consultant because that autonomy is not there. I'd rather come in, tell you all the things that you need to know about yourself, you pay me, and then I slide. As opposed to I stay there, I'm trying to uplift the work, I'm trying to make sure that people actually feel safe, and you're not giving me the power to do so. Also, mm-hmm. I tweeted probably about a week or two ago that I hate, hate when chief diversity roles are aligned with human resources. Like it just mm-hmm. bothers me so much because this is an enterprise wide role. Like this is your chief executive officer for equity. Like they need to be able to function outside the confines of HR. I shiver just thinking about it. Also, (laughs) I did post (laughs) a brand new day, um, inauguration (laughs) day. I posted that on my Facebook page. Oh, wow. Diana Ross and the Wiz. And the last thing around that, and I want to move into more of the solution, is really this idea that you brought up with professors, teachers being culturally competent. And there was an incident that happened last semester where my professor was really interested in community-based participatory research. Like that, that was her thing. She was very fluent in the topic. But when I started talking about establishing rapport with communities before you start your research, there was this huge, very evident gap. And I'm like, you know, there's so many incidences of, or incidents of mistrust between communities. I don't even want to limit it to academia. I mean, government, healthcare, mm-hmm. like, and it's not just, oh, we did something such a long time ago that they just haven't forgotten. No, these are like, sometimes these are like current atrocities. Like I imagine 20, 30 years from now, if not longer, we're going to be talking about COVID-19 as an example of a time where there was significant mistrust between a, a hospital and a community because, you know, vaccines were withheld or something of that nature. Like there is a strong need. And I'm glad you mentioned like the checkbox approach. We can't, we can't live in the checkbox anymore. We never should have been like, we need to go ahead and make that a full text box. We need some qualitative data. We need some, we need to talk about it. And then we need to pull out in vivo and we got to make it do what it do. Yes. And to your point about the the engaging in research, as qualitative research methodology teaches us, if you're if we're engaging in an ethnographic study, you can you get more data, viable data when you have established strong relationships with participants. Um, but that's even before. If you're trying to get into a space, they got to know that you're not going to come in and exploit them. Right, because that's unfortunately one of the the negative aspects about research is when it's not used to um, provide a a better narrative to those who are being studied. Right, um, but uh, to your point, even about your professor and and others in graduate education, which is a, a I want to write a whole paper about this, <laughs> about this sense of elitism in academia, 
which prohibits one from growing and being more so culturally aware and culturally competent, right? Because you learn what you learn in your school, in your program. And if you're never challenged to learn anything other because one has tenure and they're safe, because you ain't got to do nothing after that. It's like, <laughs> if you're a tenure professor, they will not, they cannot fire you unless you do something egregious. I mean, like terribly egregious. And this is one of my critiques about um, the tenure process as well as the preparation to teach on a collegiate level. K-12 instructors typically have to go through teacher prep programs. Those who teach on the collegiate level, that's not a, that's not a requirement. You don't have to pass a praxis or anything of that nature. You just show that you have the degree and that you can talk of, and that you're well-read, whatever that's supposed to mean. Uh, <laughs> that quotes, well, yeah. Because you could have read all day, but can you teach? What is your pedagogical approach? Is it transformative? Because you're sitting talking to people for an hour, three times a week. How do you know that, they, that they're learning? Like, what are your different teaching styles to keep learners engaged across the spectrum? I'm not just talking about the traditional college student, 17 to 21 year old or, or whatever, you know, it's how do you keep your learners engaged in your pedagogy? Like, what, what are your practices? And strengthening those and having a desire to strengthen those and not just regurgitate what one has been taught without uh, researching a little deeper. So I think that's a great place for us to segue, right? And talking about undoing the colonization of education. And so I wanna really touch on your religious background. You know, How are you bridging that experience to address some of those inequalities? I talk strong. <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, like I said, I, I, I am a clergyman. I'm a, I'm a preacher to my core. You hear me? Like I, that's that that's who I am. So when I when I use that frame, um, especially from a Christian context, and if we're going to use the Bible as this example, and I know I just I reference the Bible as the Bible. I don't reference it as holy because something that's holy is literally in its purest form and we've never had a bible that's been in its purest form <laughs> just want to put that out there because the bible has been colonized okay i mean if we learn our, our church history when they went to the council of nicaea and hashed out the men the men okay patriarchy that were at this table <laughs> deciding what will be in this book that people take and just anyway anyway I just kind of want to put that out there because that, that is an important note to share as it relates to religion. But I, I speak to this notion, right, um, that suggests in all of our getting to make sure that we get understanding. And if we don't challenge ourselves in all the, the, the ways that we know our epistemological uh, ways and all of that stuff, if we don't take time to really understand humans and learning more about the human condition and about the soul of people, we will continue to create 
systems of oppression for people who we do not believe fit within our respective worldview. And a lot of my argument about the discrimination, the harassment, the ostracization of people groups have been based on religious rhetoric, more so within the Abrahamic religions of <laughs> Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, whereas the sacred texts have been used as weapons against people who do not fit within this box that the writers suggest that God, you know, cares about or favors the most, i.e., individuals who identify as queer or other than heterosexual it's oh well god does not approve how did so is that to suggest that god if we are believing that god is all knowing and god makes no mistakes so are we then suggesting that god made a mistake when god made queer people like i'm confused is this is <laughs> there's so much contra there's contradiction here and here's the challenge though oftentimes with religion Religion doesn't challenge us to think, it tells us to do. It's a form of domestication. But I would suggest here that religion, that God rather, which is separate from religion, spirituality, it's, it's, that's totally separate from religion. God empowers us to think, to use our brains, our creativity to be of good in the earth while we are here, while we are passing through. So I challenge the decolonization of education by lifting those foundational principles because what I find, what I have found in my experience rather, is the individuals that are so strongly connected to, this is the way that it should be, and this is this, and this is right, and this is it, those individuals are typically very religious individuals and that the foundation of their desire to uphold patriarchy, to uphold heterosexism, to uphold, um, you know, being a, a perfect quote. And when I'm using perfect in quotes, individuals who are differently abled, not looking at them as, oh, you're wrong or, you know, God didn't make you like that or these, these other influences that then impact how individuals practice their day-to-day -day lives and engage with others. So I go to that core, right? I, like I mentioned before, DEI being soul work, I feel like any work that Jonathan Wesley is called to do is soul work. So I'm going to go straight to the soul. <laughs> so if, 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 if I can get to that soul, then that will cause some form of transformation so that we are thinking critically about how we are operating, what we are teaching. And if one, because I understand everybody does not believe in God or a God in that respect, but for those who do and use that as their foundation, I always pose the question back again, would your God, whomever you claim that to be, be proud of the way that you teach hate to others in their respective name? Is that the best example <laughs> of, you know, the deity that you serve? And I leave that for them to answer. It's not for me to figure out with you, you know, <laughs> if you, if a person wants to journey, wants me to journey with them, then I will. But that's, a, that's something they got to work out in their own soul. You know, I can't work it out for them. Um, but anyway, that's how I 
typically address these inequities when the root of it is because my morals say this. And these are morals, again, that have been taught over the years without proper exegetical due diligence. It's been a lot of eisegesis. This is what I believe. And then I'm preaching from this stance of what I believe. Instead of reading to really studying to show oneself approved, you know, that, that's a whole different layer, um, a whole different dimension rather to addressing um, this work. So my follow-up to that is what have been some of the barriers, you know, in doing that work and taking that approach? Because I can imagine people would just fall back on this is the way that my theology works. Like my God does this. I don't know what you're talking about. Like <laughs> how, how do you um, address some of those barriers? I, I come right back. I go toe to toe. So I, I am a confrontational person. I am. But it's good confrontation. I'm using the term like uh, John Lewis. Like I, I get into good trouble. It's not bad trouble. <laughs> but when, when people use that language, you know, my God, and I always go back to, so do you think you have God figured out? And do you think that your religious text is strong enough to encapsulate an omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing being can be wrapped up into books, these books within the Bible or the the, the um any religious text in that respect, do you really think that God is limited to that? And, do, and, and if that be the case, then that would suggest that God stopped speaking at Revelation. So is God not speaking something? And then when they try to go back, well, you know, the Bible is, is just true. I said, well, who wrote the Bible? You know, I, I go back to these <laughs> I go back to these questions. Well, well, God, no, God, God, God never wrote nothing. God is spirit. Spirits don't write. So who are, <laughs> who, who are you saying? Who, who wrote this? And, oh, well, Jesus wrote. No, 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 no. Jesus had a scribe. Jesus didn't write nothing. Jesus didn't write. There, there's no book that's that's labeled as go turn to the book of Jesus. There, there's <laughs> there, there's there's no there's no book. There was a scribe. And it, 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 when we look at it from the timestamp. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to go all the way down down it. But what else? We don't. We live in a technological society now where stuff can really be recorded. But if somebody sat with somebody every day and had to write every word that, that came out of their mouth by hand, okay, you're going to miss something in your translation. Something is just going to be missed. And language was very different then. So what may have been understood as such in that context. For those people may have been, been applicable to them, but this is not a one size fits all. So I go into those deeper questions because that that connects to the point where we are taught these things. And I'm not saying that there was ill intent and in stuff that was passed down to us, but we should always question how do we know what to be truth, actual truth? You know, especially when it comes down to religious texts. I always challenge people, go beyond your religious texts and learn the God of your religion. If you take time to, to develop that type of relationship, that liberty can allow one to love people equally, <laughs> to advocate for all people equally, and not 
go on these rants um, or these witch hunts for people who do not fit their respective way of of knowing or how they believe you know that god should operate you know none of nobody has a monopoly on god <laughs> nobody i wouldn't even want to try what roles could others play in addressing these problems that we see i mean we've we've talked about a lot i know we started off talking about decolonizing education and we started talking about religion which you know that's always a good topic but everybody's not that front-facing advocate or feel positioned to disrupt, what could others be doing to address these problems in their own spaces? I believe others in your own spaces, as you hear this, my hope, my prayer would be that you obtain additional courage to disrupt in your own way. If you are in control of of policy or something of that nature in your respective space, what does equitable policy look like? What does the education side of what you're doing look like? And and, and, because all of us, I would say, are educators in some way, form or fashion. Just because we may not be a quote teacher, whether that's in higher ed or K-12, somebody is going to be looking to us to teach them something. So how do we then take this call of knowing that we should know more and that we are held accountable for what we know, that we should be empowered and encouraged to learn the difficult things that will challenge our perspective so that we can grow? That's what I would say that will help other individuals. Doesn't mean you have to go tell the whomever who's maybe in a positional uh, power or position of power that, hey, blah, blah, you know, just and don't, you know, don't go off on people. You know, that, that there's a different way to, to go about this. But in that different way is by simply engaging in conversations based on education, based on something outside of the news and social media, those types of things, doing some actual research, right? And and challenging yourself to learn something about a population that is not yours. It goes back to what I stated in the beginning. Decolonization is about decentering one's majoritarian privilege. And when I say majoritarian, those identities have privilege over other underrepresented marginalized, repressed, and oppressed groups. So if a person lives in that space, decenter yourself and learn about the experiences of others. Look at some YouTube videos, watch TEDx, read some some books that will strengthen one's soul that is not just focused again on a racialized aspect. I have to say that because in this land that we are in now where race seems to be taking the forefront we live multiple axis lives that's what audrey lord said so until we really start looking at these intersections this is not the oppression olympics seeing which one is 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 uh should be looked at over others no because when 
when those individuals who are like myself stand in the crossroads, sometimes we don't know if we are being discriminated against because of race. Is it because of our sexuality? Is it because of our gender identity? Is it because of being differently able? So we're standing in the middle of the road trying to figure out which way is somebody trying to attack me today? You know, but if we learn how not to be passive aggressive, how not to inflict harm on others uh, through micro or macro aggressions, it's, it's reading and it's practice. You know, to be honest, there are going to be some mistakes along the way, but if one doesn't take on the posture of learning, then they won't be able to do anything different. So like I said in the beginning, my hope and prayer is that people find the courage to learn the difficult things and apply what they have learned to become a better human being for themselves and then seeing how that will quickly shift the relationships in their families and in their places of work. Because we don't just do this work to go to a job and perform. We do this work to be in better community with each other. So good brother. How do people keep up with you? I know you're about to be busy, right? I mean, you're trying to graduate. You're trying to be Dr. Wesley. Trying. And trying. You, you don't get there. But how do people, I, I will. I receive that. How do people keep up with your work? I mean, just might even want to just drop you a note to say keep going. Yeah. So I am on Facebook. Uh, my name as Jonathan Complexity Wesley with a K because I'm a member of the greatest fraternity known to God in man, Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. Um, so it's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, first name. Complexity is my line name. Uh, so K-O-M-P-L-E-X-I-T-Y. And my last name, Wesley. Um, also on Instagram, my handle is just, J-U-S-T, the letter J. And my last name, Wesley, W-E-S. L-E-Y, so you can find me there as well. And on Twitter, I am uh, there as well at the letter J, W-E-S, Speaks, S-P-E-A-K-S. So that's me on Twitter as well. So any of those platforms, I can be found. Um, and my book is there as well. So if you even Google my name because you forget, then... I did have a, a book that I published called You Said One Thing, God Said Differently, which addresses the reconciliation of sexuality and spirituality. So there are those four ways I would say that one can reach me. Now, I get so excited. I'm talking to all these Black folks and they're like, oh, you can just Google me. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, so, that's so dope. I'm, I'm so, so appreciative of y'all. So, your brother, I appreciate the time tonight. I mean, there were so many intersecting overlapping interacting things that we could have you know taken even further but there i think this is a good conversation to get people started so i appreciate you sharing your expertise and experience here my pleasure good brother thank you for the invitation and anytime you need me i'm i'm here so just let me know you know it's always interesting putting together the outline for the episodes because behind the scenes you're just imagining what a good conversation would sound like what would people respond to what's going to attract listeners and then you get into the actual episode and you're having the dialogue and you realize 
we've only touched on one thing and that's okay because that's that's exactly what's happened here and on so many other episodes you know i really came in wanting to talk about decolonizing education decolonizing curriculums and the conversation expanded in ways that i hadn't planned and i'm totally okay with it because we need to elevate this this conversation around intersectionality and just the various ways our social identities are framed and what some of the impacts are because of that. And so first, of course, I want to thank Jonathan for joining me on the podcast. Appreciate you, Noop. And second, I want to segue briefly into some announcements. Shout out to the people who listen all the way to the end because I put the announcements at the end. I think that's a little trick I learned at church, but whatever. So coming this fall, I am planning for September. The date is yet to be determined. We will have our first Equity Matters Social Justice Academy session, and it is called Taking Up All the Space, Understanding Power and Positionality. And I think today's episode is a great primer for that discussion as we're going to start talking about the various ways social identities are formed and how privilege and power is associated with those things. And so you often hear about positionality from the stance of a researcher and how there is a power differential between the researcher and the subject, subject used loosely here. But there's also implications for us as practitioners, as individuals doing community work, where positionality needs to be unpacked and understood. And so the first Equity Matters Social Justice Academy session, September 2021, I will have a date for you soon. Stay tuned. Also, standard announcement. Follow us on social media. We are thriving on all of our platforms. Find us on Twitter. That's at Equity Matters PC. On Instagram, that's Equity Matters Podcast. And for the traditional folks out there, like us on Facebook. We are open. And we are still accepting calls for features. I know I've received quite a few. I am planning to respond to those starting in starting later next month. And we're going to start spacing them out for folks that don't know a little bit of behind the scenes. We actually record every week. And so that's going to slow down. But we will still be putting out two episodes at a time. I realize that I've just got so much content that I'm sitting on right now, which is a great thing. But then there's things that happen in real life where I'm like, I want to drop this episode right now. And that that tension is is unruly. So what I want to do is I want to space out the the recording frequency and we will plan for two recordings a month. So for the folks who did submit to the call for features, I got you. I'll be responding to those shortly and we'll get something booked. As always, folks, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, just remember equity matters.